This evening, I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapters 53, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7, many theologians actually refer to this, including John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, as actually the very first gospel. One of, what an, what an opening gospel that there could be here, how wonderful it is. In Isaiah chapter 53, if you remember during our communion services, many times we have recited this, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is done, so he opened not his mouth. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee and thank Thee, Lord, for this prophecy that was given by Isaiah who opens up this chapter. Who hath believed our report? Who will listen? And I pray this evening, Lord, that we will consider this of the most incredible, important prophecy given, perfectly fulfilled. That we will remember every day of our lives the one who is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows yet acquainted with grief. And as the wicked, sinful human beings of this world, we've all hid our faces from him. And it's thee that has turned our eyes towards thee, Lord, if we love thee and keep thy commandments. I pray that no one here would ever even think of rejecting Thee, but would love Thee and love these words. Bless us, teach us this evening, guide us as we all learn together, and I pray, Lord, that we will get a window into what the heart of this wonderful prophet Isaiah had to say with this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. This is often entitled, The Suffering Servant of Jehovah, this chapter, The Suffering Servant of Israel. And this is, many have called the first gospel, the Galeon, the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that Thou wouldst bless it to our hearts that we might not sin against Thee. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Isaiah. Isaiah's name means Lord of Salvation, similar to that of Joshua, Elisha, Yeshua, Jesus. He was the son of Amos. Quoted over 65 times in the New Testament more than any other prophet. He ministered around Jerusalem during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. He had two sons. We don't hear about them a lot. But he was reared in Jerusalem. It's incredible that this prophecy comes from the very city that Christ would be crucified out of in Jerusalem. Here Isaiah predicted the coming of a servant and a savior. The servant would bring justice to the nations. He would establish Israel in a new covenant with the Lord and bring light to the Gentiles and take away the sins of the people. 
This is the prophecy. And so, if we look this evening, then this message this evening is entitled, Despised and Rejected. How could that be? What's this evening called? Good Friday. Thank you. Good Friday. Was it a good Friday for Jesus? What was good about it? The Good Friday from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I love going back to that old, that old series of collection of, uh, of, of studies from the Encyclopedia. Good Friday's entitled is the Friday Before Easter, the day on which Christians annually observe the commemoration of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the early days of Christianity. Good Friday was observed as a day of sorrow, penance, and fasting, a characteristic that finds expression in the German word, the Karfreitag, which means here it was an expression or sorrowful Friday. What's good about it? What's good about Good Friday? Think about that. If it's so good... Why don't we see hardly anybody commemorating it this evening? I've driven past many churches on the way from Glen Arm, and there was nobody meeting this evening. Nobody. It was good for our benefit. That's why it was good. Remember when creation in Genesis chapter 1 that we see the narrative from Moses and how the heavens and the earth were created and the, the firmament to divide the waters and the creeping things, the plants, all the fruit-bearing trees, the herb-yielding seeds, the animals. Mankind was created, the woman was created, and God brought it all together and said it was good. It was good. It was good. Man is created in our image, and then he ends it with a benediction. It was very good. So what's so good about Good Friday? It wasn't good for Jesus at all. But what was good about it is for Him to show mercy and to die for us because He loves us and for us that is good. You wonder how Martin Luther tagged Good Friday and the suffering servant of Jehovah and of Israel? It's called the Unfecton, another German word. And what he coined it as is the unbridled, it meant the unbridled assault of Satan who personally handled this event, the most single important event that ever happened in the history of the world or the universe is our Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. And it was an unbridled assault that came after Christ and Satan did everything he could to destroy and to ruin that. And you could see all those around that despised and rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the window here. Here you think this is a prophecy coming, and basically it sounds like a lead-in for a very good full prophecy to be fulfilled. And you go back to Isaiah 52, look at verse 14. As many were astonished or astonished at the, his vicious was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His crucifixion was so brutal, he was so marred, he couldn't even, he wasn't even recognizable. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And Isaiah was told basically by the Lord, as other prophets were, that there wouldn't be those that would listen. 
And so, here we're worshiping on Good Friday here, all these, about 2,800 years later, after this was written, and we're still considering it this evening. And isn't it incredible that this wonderful prophecy, isn't it incredible that it opens up with a question? What does it mean, who hath believed our report? And Isaiah is saying, who's willing to listen about the coming Messiah? I think Isaiah was trained and he knew something was really wrong and even in his day with the Jewish nation had turned its back on the Lord. He says, who hath believed our report? Verse 1 here. Who will hear us? The prophet whose job is to deliver and interpret the oracles of God Almighty, he asks, who will heal the... Hear the guarantee of the coming of the Messiah. Who will understand the betrayal, trial, crucifixion, and believe the resurrection and ascension of the suffering servant of Jehovah, Israel, the Messiah? And when he comes, hardly anybody then would listen. We know that Israel will not even be ready for the first advent of the, the advent of the Messiah. The nation did not recognize the deliverer deliver as we see in John 1 verses 9 through 11. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Here he comes. For the first advent, it was guaranteed all throughout the Old Testament. Christ asked over and over and over again. He asked Nicodemus. He also asked the disciples. He asked Cleopas and, and his friend on the road to Emmaus, haven't you read the prophecies in the Old Testament? Have you not read them? Why are you not ready? Paul the Apostle reiterates this in Romans chapter 10 verse 16. We see, but they have not all, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Jeremiah 5.21, Psalm 115.6, Ezekiel 12.2, the prophets all said, have eyes to see and see not, they have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. And that is the entitlement if you want to put it that way, of those that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ are blind. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Christ even actually stretches that. He says, they have ears, but they cannot hear. They have no understanding. They have no wisdom. How many times did Jesus say repeatedly when he would open a sermon? You know, I've been listening to messages my whole life about the miracles of Jesus and teaching, and there's only one pastor that I ever heard that ever made this an issue and brought this up, and I thought it was brilliant. How many times Christ would give a message, and what would he say at the end of it? He would say, He who hath ears, let him hear. And what he was saying, it was a Hebraism saying, this was what my grandfather used to tell me. He used to always say to me, keep your ears open and your mouth shut and you might learn something. And so he says, who has... He, Christ is reiterating what Isaiah is asking the question, who will believe this report? He said, he that hath ears, let him hear. Those are the ones that hear, that, that, that are, that are here. the Lord has them here. They're the ones that are ingesting this wonderful gospel. As Ezekiel ate the scrolls and they came out of his pores like they tasted like honey, he was giving the word of God. Christ spoke in the temple 
It was they, he had been accused of having torn the temple down and rebuilt it in three days. And the Jews were furious at him because he, they thought he was blaspheming the temple. But what temple was he talking about? He is the temple. He's saying, I will be torn down and in three days I will be risen. The wicked had no clue as to what this meant. He was accused of blasphemy and he was mocked to scorn as he hung on the cross. We go back to Matthew 27, 40 and Mark 15, 29. He had spoken of his body. And the stark reality here is that Isaiah is asking a question with this unbridled grief, much like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Who is listening? Not many as we see in this next question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We're listening now, but I think a good answer can be seen in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2. Hebrews 11, 1 opens up with, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. They heard the report, they listened to it. Who is the arm of Jehovah Elohim or the Lord revealed? We know that the prophets, the disciples of Christ and the apostles, they all love that report. Who is he talking about? His right arm. He who Daniel saw ascending into heaven in the night vision to take his place as the supreme governor of the universe on the right hand of God. Our Messiah is the right hand of God. And to answer this question, we can find it in John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord has been revealed by those that he's given, and he's equipped, and he's given his word to. And look at how they were hated. Look at how the prophets were murdered. Look how they were hated. Look at the apostles. Only one evaded being executed and he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Look at what happened to the disciples. Look at the martyrs. Look at what happened during the Great Awakening in this unfectum, this unbridled assault against the people of the Lord. He said, if they hate me, I can promise you they'll hate you. That's what he said. Tender plant, a root out of a dry ground. This is the visage. This is the antithesis of how Lucifer is described in the New Testament. That Christ is a tender plan, or he's a twig, shows that our Lord Jesus Christ would have no magnificence or royal outward display here on this earth, but would ultimately be esteemed by the Father and nevertheless highly exalted by the Father. As we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We see the stem of Jesse is an account that, of this royal house, that Christ would be an extension. His earthly presence, his earthly incarnation, his earthly presence here in his humanity would be an extension of David, King David in that fallen booth of David. And it would be Christ is the one that's going to turn that booth right side up. He's not of the sap of this earth as a tree, but out of a dry ground, denoting that the early church's beginnings seemed feeble, weak, and unlikely to survive the awful hordes of resistance and attack from the Jews, the Pharisees, from Rome, and all these other assaults from Satan. The gospel of the Messiah 
the one thing we can understand that we can always remember and we never have to worry about is this gospel and this word of the Lord. It will always, even though it's a tender plant, it's a root out of a dry ground, it will always live and it will always prosper. It can never be put out. No beauty we should desire of Him. This is very much the opposite of the artwork, the paintings, and the actors who have portrayed Jesus in this direct antithesis of the description of the very becoming archangel Lucifer who uses the tar pit trap of beauty to entice followers into his hard web of deceit. And we see that all over Hollywood. Hollywood is nothing about beauty. It's, I mean, it's nothing but about beauty and appearances. Christ was not about physical appearances. It was what flowed out of his mouth and his soul that grabbed the hearts of people and the power he had of salvation. Whereas Lucifer is not this European drawing of Satan that has these horns. You know, you've seen the, you've seen the cartoons and he has this pointed tail. It's nothing like that. Lucifer is a very handsome and a very attractive man who people will just flock to and they will go after him. Hollywood, money, power, fame, prosperity gospels and all these churches, they follow after images. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4 we read, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So, once again, the title this evening is Despised and Rejected of Men. We see this in verse 3. So many false teachers there have been. We saw the stumbling of the Pharisees and the stumbling of the Sadducees. And even as you get into Acts chapter 22 and Paul, he's giving the gospel and he's showing the efficacy of it. Even the Sadducees are warring against the Pharisees because they don't, the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did believe that the body would survive after death. And the soul would survive. And even they were fighting amongst each other. But both of them missed this report. Their heritage, and their, their, their heritage of old, the ones that they spoke about, they lifted up Moses and they lifted up Abraham. What did Christ say about Moses? What did He say about Abraham? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And Moses said, there will be a prophet who will come. And woe be unto those that will not listen to him. So important. He was mocked. He was threatened. Sought after to be stoned and thrown off of a cliff. Unlawfully detained. Falsely accused. Spat upon. Scourged and beaten. Crucified in the most brutal and humiliating execution imaginable known to mankind with wounds, fatigue, flies, blood, infection. And that he was already basically torn to pieces before he was ever even laid out, sprawled out on the cross. His whole back had been ripped to shreds. Can you imagine feeling your back in that condition, rubbing up against those splinters as they're putting these seven-inch spikes in your wrists and in your feet, and then raised as, the, as all of the gravity pulls down on that cross and the incredible pain that that was? Can you even begin to imagine that? Despised and rejected. And, those, and there were those that mocked him. Said, why don't you save yourself? Oh, well, he saved the best for last. He let himself go all the way into that tomb. Dead for three days. Just the day right before his body stinketh like Lazarus. Remember, he was in four days. 
And just before that happens, he showed them all. He got up and he walked out of that tomb. Here's Christ in his hometown. Take a minute to turn to Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to read verses 54 through 58. Talk about despised and rejected. While we're turning to this, think of those down through the ages. Just think to yourself of those that you know and examples of those that have tried to do what's right and to uphold the righteous truths of Jesus and they've been persecuted and they've been maligned and they've been rejected as extensions of those sharing in the sufferings with Jesus Christ. Think about that. Here Christ goes to his hometown. His hometown where people are supposed to love him. And we see in Matthew 13, 54, And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? It sounds like it's starting out pretty wonderful here. Verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they all not with us? I mean, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the very same town. He goes in and he starts speaking about Naaman and the woman of Zarepta and her son. And they cast him, tried to cast him over a cliff and he walked right through them. One of many examples, despised and rejected. Look at Psalm chapter 22, verse 6. What a prophecy. This is a prophecy of Christ from David, who Christ, David was Christ's ancestor here on this earth. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Can you imagine? Good Friday, people despising our Lord Jesus Christ to have the mercy to go to the cross to save us from our sins. The word of the Lord also is despised. Christ is the word of the Lord. He's the Logos. Isaiah 5.24, we read, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the, the, devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They didn't just despise Him physically. They despised His word. They, des- they despised His message, what He stood for. As in any wonder, the next portion of this verse shows us that He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see Jeremiah, we see Isaiah. Jeremiah writes the whole book of Lamentations partially predicated on the fact that his country would not listen to him and they were taken over. Here's the cup of wrath that Christ had to bear is something it's very hard for us to comprehend. And remember, if you ask the metaphorical question, is when Christ is in the garden, he's sweating blood, one of the three times that he cried, as Pastor Coleman opened that up to us wonderfully, what did he see when he looked in that cup? What did he see? What was it that scared him so much in his humanity? He begged the Lord, he said, let this cup pass before me, not my will, but then he says, thy will be done. And it's, I think this is one of the key Christian motifs or the key Christian um, uh, applications for us to teach us how to deal with tragedy. He goes to the Father. He said, release me from this. And the Father says, no. 
you're going to that cross. And when you do it, not only are you going to go, I am going to forsake you. Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? If Christ didn't get what he wanted, how can we expect to when we sinned and he didn't? He set the bar and he set the example of what it was to be despised and rejected and to hang in there for us even though we sinned against him. The cup of wrath something we can't even comprehend. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of his fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And this is a window of the sorrow Christ bore for us in Matthew 26, 38. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And, and I truly believe that should be woven into all of our prayers when we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. His will for us is so much better than anything that we can fabricate. The things that we think that we want, He knows better. We hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Never would we on our own have shown our faces to Christ with faith, love, and obedience to even His very own existence here on this earth had He not loved us first. Why do you love Him? You, did you decide to follow Jesus without any direction at all from our Lord? I don't believe at all that we even have the propensity to do that because of our hearts. Isn't it wonderful to be able to say, I love Him because He loved me first. He knew He... How could, how could we love Him first when we weren't even around maybe 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 30 years ago? He knew it before we were ever even born. I think that's wonderful. He was here in the flesh and was rejected by so many. Remember how Adam had hid his face from God with wickedness, didn't he? And we see the photos in the movies that portray him cannot even come close to revealing his true appearance, the true vicious of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot even imagine what he looked like. You ever realize that when you read about Christ, going all the way back to the prophecies, and then you go to the Synoptic Gospels, you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you head right into the book of Acts and Romans, you never hear one description of Christ ever laughing or joking around, making, making fun and making jokes in the pulpit. That happens all the time now. I mean, it's become like an improv in a lot of these places where it's nothing but jokes and all these stories. Stories and stories and stories. Christ didn't have time for that. He was always looking in that cup of wrath. He knew what was in it. And he didn't have time. He was a man of sorrows, yet acquainted with grief. And even though we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he didn't hide his from us. He had griefs and sorrows, acquainted with them. He kept up the acquaintance and did not grow shy. He never fainted. He never grew melancholy to the situation and backed away. These griefs and sorrows, they were allotted to him. He bore them. And he took them and he carried them and he didn't shrink from them. He never sunk. The load was heavy. The way was long. 
That path to Golgotha was hard, yet he did not tire, but he persevered to the end, all the way to the point where he said it is finished. I think that's just incredible. Never we would have, on our own have ever have, have shown our faces, but he did. Think about the lament that he had over his people. Don't think you're not included in this, what I'm about to read you. Back in the day in the Old Testament, if you were a Hittite, or if you were a converted Philistine, if you were, there was possibility for Shechemites, but Simeon and Levi had a problem with that, if you remember back in the book of Genesis. But you could be a converted Jew Christian. You could. You do the rites. You go through the process of purification. You would go to Moses or go to, you would go to Levi or you would go to Aaron or one of the priests and you could become part of the household of faith. And Christ cries out here in Luke chapter 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in that Hebraism where he says it in the superlative degree twice, which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered my children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. What did he say? Ye would not listen to me. You wouldn't listen to these words. How can people listen today to the word of God if it's not being preached? How can they listen if it's just being covered over and it's just being basically put lipstick on it and made like a sideshow? He was even denied and he was, Christ was even despised and rejected temporarily by his best friends. Peter, it was temporary. Judas, it was not. That was a premeditated assault against Christ that he carried all the way through. Peter would eventually himself be despised and rejected. He's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. I'm going to read you a quote by John Calvin in a moment. We'll finish here shortly. Part of my study here is I, for years, I've been, I love reading about Washington and Stonewall Jackson. I love reading about Lee and Mosby's Raiders. Um, uh, reading about Patrick Henry and his pastor Samuel Davies, a great awakening. I've read about George Whitfield. Love reading about them. But one thing that I have evaded in a law for a long time is reading about Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. You ever read about him? You ever heard anything about him at all? Does anybody know what number president he was in the United States? Number 26. The one before him, number 25, was McKinley, who was, who was assassinated, and the one after him was Taft. When we were talking a few minutes ago about those standing up doing things for the Lord and being rejected and despised and carrying on that suffering, you never hear about his religion, do you? Let me, let me read you something about Teddy Roosevelt. Now, I'm not saying he was some paragon of religion going around spreading the gospel to all the world. He was, very, he was very bold in politics, but he was a man of integrity. He really was. His sister spoke about him, and he was getting ready to stand up, give an address to deliver to the Long Island Bible Society in 1901, and this is what Roosevelt declared. This is a wonderful quote. He says, and I quote, this was Teddy Roosevelt, Every thinking man, when he thinks, realizes what a very large number of people tend to forget, 
that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally, and I do not mean figuratively, I mean literally, he says, impossible for us to figure to ourselves what that life would be if these teachings were removed. He's talking about the teachings of Christ and the Bible. We would lose almost all the standards. Boy, this sounds familiar today. He says we would almost all lose all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals, all the standards towards which we with more or less of resolution strive to raise ourselves. Almost every man who has by his life work added to the sum of human achievement of which the race is proud has based his life work largely upon the teachings of the Bible. Among the greatest men, a disproportionately large numbers have been diligent and close students of the Bible at first hand. That was a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. In Teddy Roosevelt, he uplifts the Bible and he spoke about Christ. He goes to run a second time for president and he gets shot. I actually got, saw a picture of the actual x-ray of his chest and a bullet was lodged in his fifth rib and he loved the Lord. He wanted to get back in office. He wanted to protect the laborers. And he hated the unions. He hated all of the corrupt unions that were trying to kill the pay raises and all the work that was out there, like the coal miners and the workers in the shipyard. And he would stand up for the blue-collar man. And he actually wound up formulating the police commission in New York. The guy was incredible. So he goes to run again. He gets shot in his fifth rib and he lived for like another six years. And this is what happens when you stand up for Jesus. He carried that bullet till the day he died. They couldn't pull it. They went, they went to operate on him. They couldn't even extract it out of his fifth rib. This is the kind of men we need today. Look at that quote. Isn't that beautiful? Well, he hath borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Surely Christ was our substitution, and God the Father would have him bear the sins of every believing Christian that ever was and ever will be. And the Jews who watched him die thought he was being punished for his own sins. He wasn't punished for his own sins. He never sinned. He died for us. He carried our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was a man of grief. Matthew 8, 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken, here we see it again, by Isaiah the prophet saying, himself took our infirmities, infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. How did he bear our sicknesses? Why is it that we still get sick? Why is it that we still age? Why is it that we still suffer? We're not there yet. But we're going to find out. In eternity, all sickness will be removed. Healing is included in the benefits of the atonement. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. John Calvin writes, We thought him to be smitten, wounded by God, and afflicted. In the second clause, he shows how great was the ingratitude and wickedness of the people who did not know why Christ was so severely afflicted, but imagined that God smote him on account of his own sins, though they knew that he was perfectly innocent, and his innocence was attested even by his judge. Calvin didn't miss a thing in that statement. 
John 18, verses 38 to 40, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. And do you realize that he had said that in front of Herod at one point? Talk about, we, we could take this and stretch this a long way about the despising and the rejecting of Herod and Pilate who basically show themselves nothing but in the fog of utter stupidity to literally stand there and say, I find no fault in him at all and turn around and just cater to those that yelled crucify him. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Let him go. Now, Barabbas was a robber. But if you go into Luke, it says he also was a murderer. And they let him go. And we see that with his stripes, if we move forward, we are healed. We as Christians have to draw consolation from this verse as we understand only by His shed blood may we be reconciled unto the Father. He pays the propitiation for our sins and satisfies the impending judgment due as by the Father. Our sins are cleansed as far as east is from the west. Think about that. Look at the shape of the cross. Look at the north cross pointing to heaven. And the bottom pointing at the earth, and you stretch his arms out, and as far as his propitiation, satisfying the judgment of God that we deserve, as far as the east is from the west, that's what he did for us. Christ would tell the disciples of the scourging that they would receive, they would share in his sufferings as Christ would be scourged and torn to ribbons. And this is the cornerstone of our beliefs. Only with His stripes are we healed. And here we are in verse 6. We're like sheep. We're all wanderers. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And then we see He was oppressed and He was afflicted. And as we know the crucifixion narrative, He opened not His mouth. He never said anything deceitful or violent. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Go back to the prophecy in Zechariah 13.6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I was wounded in the house of my friends. Despised and rejected. His death was voluntary. It was carried out, it was premeditated, but it was all perfectly orchestrated by the perfect sovereign providence of our Lord God Almighty. And it was Christ, even at His weakest state on that cross on Good Friday, that He had planned all of that, all the way down to the last drop of blood from His body. He had it all perfectly, perfectly, chiefly in view, knowing that as he spoke going to the cross, that he said, there are those that thou hast given into my hand, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is his glorification. This was the road to his exaltation. And as you'll see coming up this Sunday, you're going to be hearing, Lord willing, we're all going to be in God's house. We're going to be singing, no doubt, he arose. 
and the resurrection. Look at the degree that it's lifted up where he resurrects. And I just don't understand tonight why Good Friday is so unimportant to so many people. What could be more wonderful than to know that your body is going to resurrect? We're all going to die. The mortality of mankind is 100%. We're all going to resurrect and the Lord's going to reunite our bodies and He's going to be with us all throughout eternity and showing His love to us. And isn't that the least we could do is to just remember that this evening. I've been to services when I was a kid. Dr. McIntyre, many, he would stand there and preach for three hours. And he'd go over, he would go into these messages, talking about the prophecies, he'd go into the synoptic gospels, and then he'd go right into Paul. And Paul wrote 60% of the New Testament, and he would bring it back over and over and over and over again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would apply it to Christian living under the New Covenant. That, I just, it, it just, it's incredible. There's a lot more. Lord willing, I'll get another chance to do this and we'll go to the rest of Isaiah 53 as each verse has its own precious application for us to remember Him. And with that being said, despised and rejected of men, well, I pray we all in our hearts, none of us ever despise and reject Him, but we give that wonderful story and that gospel to others and share it with them. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee for bringing us together with this beautiful story this evening. Thank Thee that the prophecy has been fulfilled. We know that Thou came a first time. And Lord, we look forward to Thy second advent, and I pray that we will be prepared. So Lord, teach us Thy ways this evening. Prepare our hearts for the Sabbath day. Coming here in, in, on this, this coming Lord's Day, it's called Easter, and I pray that our hearts would be prepared. Heal those that are sick in this church this evening, Lord. I pray especially this evening for Miss Millie, who has been under a lot of health restraints. And I pray for her and Pastor Coleman. And pray for my wife who cannot be here with us today, who had surgery today. Bless her heart. And she said over and over again how she wanted to be here. I thank thee for her. I pray that thou give us a good night. And I pray that we'll all arrive home safely to our homes. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.